This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. What would the world look like from the campus of Harvard College? What would the world look like from a tenure of over a half century on the faculty of Harvard University? That kind of question frames a conversation that we worth having, and it just so happens that's the conversation we get to have today. Harvey C. Mansfield is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of Government at Harvard University. He studies there and teaches political philosophy. He has written on figures such as Edmund Burke and Machiavelli. He has written a number of works and has received awards, including a National Humanities Medal from the President of the United States. As Professor Mansfield says, he has hardly left Harvard since his arrival in 1949, and next year will mark his 50th anniversary on the faculty of that institution. Professor Mansfield, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have looked forward to this conversation, and uh, in particular to a conversation about the state or perhaps even we might say the soul of education in America. You have been in a very privileged position. Indeed, as you say, you've hardly left Harvard since 1949. I can't imagine a figure who is better positioned to tell us what's really going on in American education in general, and for instance, uh, very specifically at Harvard University, at the institutions at the most elite level of education in America. Thank you very much. Um, I like the word that you used, soul. Uh, because I think that education is really the soul of our country. Um, it's shown in our Constitution, which is, gives us a, um, a guide and a kind of structure within which we act, but it's our education that determines how we think and perhaps uh, how we act as well. Uh, the view from Harvard is uh, rather complacent. So if you want the view from Harvard, don't ask me. I um, uh, disagree with uh, most of my colleagues in the direction of uh, um, of American education. Uh, I suppose you could uh, divide it into uh, higher education and the rest. Um, um, said, um, high school and elementary school is, I think, uh, uh, dominated by the notion of self-esteem. This, our students are taught to find something to love that's in themselves and not so much taught to earn that esteem. I think our education below the university level is much too soft and easy. We should be more demanding of our children, uh, not uh, partly in the, in the way of discipline, which is important, but still more in the way of the intellect. And when it comes to higher education and to Harvard, uh, I think the same troubles uh, can be found. They, too, believe in something like self-esteem or political correctness, which is uh, their way of uh, behaving and confining uh, our education to uh, a certain range of issues that uh, one finds uh, raised mainly or only on the left, even the far left, race, class, and gender. This is uh, based on thinking, which is quite obsolete, uh, perhaps uh, dates from the 1930s or even before. Mm. Um, and um, 
uh, d- derives from uh, Karl Marx, uh, although they rarely you rarely hear that name anymore. Still, his ideas are still very strong in uh, America's university, somewhat modernized, of course. And so, and this uh, political correctness uh, keeps uh, our college students from hearing a range of discussion in politics that is uh, anywhere near comparable to what the ordinary American citizen hears and what uh, one can um, find and or, or hear in Washington D.C. Uh, there's there's a the, the range of opinion at Harvard which one hears expressed is very much narrower than even the Cambridge City Council or which is a or, or, or the uh, Massachusetts uh, State House both of which are uh, one one party institutions but uh, that compares very poorly with uh, uh, st- strong and, and vital discussion that we get in uh, in Washington. So I would like to see our um, something done about our political correctness. That's uh, certainly a strong point. Another point is that uh, Harvard's education has um, weakened the cultivation of the mind. I think college education should have two general aims, and one is to make us good citizens, and the other is to make us good um, persons, good people. And the second has to do with the cultivation of various virtues and talents, and especially the cultivation of the mind. And the first has to do with uh, those uh, principles of uh, American politics and of democratic self-government that we uh, practice and need to be taught to appreciate. Yes. In your uh, Bradley lecture that you gave, uh, I believe, earlier this year, uh, you said about Harvard, you can always tell a Harvard man, but you can't tell him much, as you were kind of repeating uh, some of the uh, the old jokes about Harvard. But then you said, in my time there, old Harvard, a place of tradition with its prejudices, has become new Harvard, a place of prestige with its prejudices. What's the difference? You asked the question. I'd love to hear you answer it. Well, the old Harvard, with its prejudices, would be the Harvard of uh, of gentlemen's seas. And it had certain virtues. For example, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a gentleman's sea uh, scholar at at Harvard a while ago, uh, and uh, there were and there there was a sense of responsibility and of uh, of reliability that was uh, imbued in Harvard students. Uh, in the you know the, in the say the first uh, half of the 20th century, but uh, then after that it was uh, and 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 those and those people had their prejudices too, which was a, a certain narrowness of outlook, and uh, the fact that uh, Harvard was not open to talented people uh, of all kinds uh, of both sexes and of uh, and we had very few blacks and very few Jews. Um, so uh, and, and under the new Harvard, that kind of uh, failing has been corrected. But on the other hand, we've lost the sense of responsibility that the um, older Harvard had. And, uh, and the sense that when you go to college, you want to learn what makes you self-reliant and makes you knowing of some of our most fundamental principles. And then, uh, so, so the new prejudices have to do with the political correctness that I mentioned a moment ago, 
and with the, the kind of postmodern uh, relativism, which uh, sees all goals or human activities as equal, whether good or bad, and as uh, no, there, there being no way to say that some action is good and some action is bad. And therefore, um, one is free to choose, and there's no guidance by which one can choose. So that that kind of uh, relativism easily goes with the loss of the sense that one has a duty to one's um, country and oneself, and uh, to God or to other and to any higher principles that uh, transcend oneself. It's as if one's guidance came simply out of oneself and that there was nothing outside or above that should command our attention. So the average American high school student who right now has as his or her greatest aspiration to achieve admission to Harvard University and whose parents are, 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 are encouraging that kind of, uh, that kind of aspiration uh, should, uh, and, and very few will, very few who apply will receive that admission, but should they receive that prize, what in terms of education would they actually receive if, if they become students at Harvard College? Uh, a, a very chancy uh, education. It all depends on the prudence and the care with which a student chooses. The, the principal at Harvard now, and by the way, this is not just peculiar to Harvard. It's true of all the, at least the most prestigious universities. They're all pretty much uh, the same. When, when a student arrives at uh, Harvard, he's, he's faced with this uh, fat catalog. Uh, well, it's not printed anymore. It's online. But a, a catalog with a confusing number of courses on specialized uh, topics with f- funny titles that uh, don't or shouldn't make sense. And, um, and, and, and he's sort of in a quandary as to what to do. There's, uh, there are very few requirements even for majors, and where there are requirements, then uh, the the student gets choice as to which course to take to satisfy it. So it it can be very chancy. One mistake that many students make when they arrive is to take courses in uh, subjects of the day, like uh, climate change. I was talking to a, st- a new student uh, the other day, and he said he, well, he was taking a course on uh, global climate change. That's not a, a proper subject for a course for undergraduates or for freshmen anyway. You should be studying some of the classics, some of the enduring things, some of the books that have um, uh, lasted for uh, a couple of millennia and which um, deserve our attention and our careful study. You have written, it's quite surprisingly, I'd say, unless one is aware of your agenda here, that Nietzsche is the most indispensable philosopher of our time. And uh, speaking of, of Nietzsche, you identified Nietzsche as the fountain or the catalyst for our modern crisis of thinking, a crisis of liberal thought. Would you explain that a bit further? Yes. Um, I don't recommend uh, falling in love with Nietzsche. <laughs> I always... Yeah, I tell my students that this is someone who, whom you will like probably much more than you ought to. 
but uh, he, he is, uh, is a, makes a wonderful diagnosis of the crisis of our time and of the West, but it's, his solutions are, are not to be recommended. Uh, he, he, he wrote in the um, late 19th century, in the 1880s, up to um, almost to the 20th century, 1880s and 1890s. But he seemed to see the whole century that came that that lay before him. What he thought that was so important was that uh, liberalism or Western principles were con- being consumed by self-doubt. We no longer believe in the principles of liberty or progress or reason, and we are stymied by our relativism, which I mentioned before. Yes, and, and that is. Relativism says that there is nothing worth striving for, certainly nothing worth dying for, and that means that uh, uh, it's it's up to you, and but the, that there's no guidance for you. So you're just in the situation that I described of the Harvard students who uh, arrive here and uh, see what there is. Nietzsche called this situation, or our situation, nihilism, and which he defined as uh, nothing is true everything is permitted. So if nothing is true, then nothing is right or wrong, and everything is permitted. You can see what a dangerous principle that is. Well, indeed. And if we establish liberalism in the classic Western sense, as that which in the United States would encompass both political liberals and political conservatives, uh, established in a a notion of the individual and, and, and of liberty, uh, you make the point that, that Nietzsche and, and nihilism essentially relativize the very principles upon which liberalism is made possible. Well, that's right. Uh, that's just what it did. And, uh, and, and so it, it, didn't ex- it didn't refute them, but it just more or less asserted that uh, none of them can be proved. And, uh, when, and, and, it's, and it's as if it were just as uh, uh, a humane life to be a free or a slave. So uh, the, the, all, all the things that one thinks one can take for granted, according to Nietzsche, and he's had a tremendous influence on the rest of us, are open to the same questions, and because nothing nothing is true. And when he hears that from every American student coming out of high school, it's what they all arrive with when I see them here as uh, freshmen. Professor Mansfield understands that education is not merely about the transmission of data. It is not only about the matter of the development of minds. It is also about that word we used so carefully, the soul. It is about a person, a person who is a learner, a person who is a political actor, a person who is also in a very interesting developmental period during those university years, and a person who is going to emerge, having had that experience on the college or university campus, as a person changed by that experience. One of the most, uh, well, troubling issues of our conversation with Professor Mansfield has to do with the loss of confidence in any enduring principles in, in terms of the major elite institutions of American educational life. It's not by accident that Professor Mansfield speaks with such authority on this as he has spent more than half a century on the campus of Harvard University. And as he speaks of the Harvard of old and compares it with the Harvard now, It is a place where one set of prejudices has replaced another older set of prejudices. The biggest problem I see is that whether you call the umbrella term of this era and its uh, its formulas and and ways of thinking, its its habits of the mind is postmodernism, 
The realities are that the modern liberal experiment is falling in on itself because its embrace of relativism and uh, an utter subjectivism, even as we shall see in nihilism, well, it, it undermines the very structures that are necessary to sustain that kind of experiment. Professor Mansfield is a man whose who's learning has been primarily invested in political philosophy. He speaks with that kind of background and with the knowledge of how human beings have created societies and sustained them. But he also understands that there is a very important issue at stake in the, the process of education that has to do not only with how people act, but first of all, with how they think. And that also depends upon what they know. In a recent book, Professor Mansfield argued that today the very word manliness seems quaint and obsolete. He went on to say, we are in the process of making the English language gender neutral, and manliness, the quality of one gender, or rather of one sex, seems to describe the essence of the enemy we are attacking, the evil we are eradicating. Professor Mansfield, when you wrote this book on manliness, uh, you had to know that, uh, that you were taking on not only the battlements of uh, contemporary gender studies, but almost the entire edifice of the modern university complex. Well, that's right. <laughs> I was. Perhaps I didn't quite realize the extent of it. This was five years ago. I don't think this, that the situation has changed very much uh, since then. Uh, my book uh, got a, a lot of notice, most of it adverse when it came out in 2006. Yeah, you would expect part of that, certainly. And, and, and in the, to that degree, you are a, a controversialist in the best sense of the word. You're willing to take on these issues. Uh, I think, however, many of your critics didn't actually read the book. And uh, I, I was struck, even when the book came out, by the fact that there was tremendous outrage that you would even write a book on this topic, much less with this title, and, and make an argument for an essential objective difference between the, the two sexes. But you are not arguing that, uh, that society should be prejudiced uh, in, in one particular direction or another when it comes to its public life, but you are relying on a very important distinction between public and private life. What in the world happened to that distinction in the, in the modern cultural experiment? Well, it was one of the central tenets of feminism that um, the personal is the political. So that's a kind of denial yes. of, uh, of a distinction between public and private life. Yes, I, th I think that our solution uh, we have uh, in a way, but we just don't formulate it and, and, and express it to ourselves. And that is that uh, men and women should be equal in uh, public spaces and in, at work, in business, in careers, in jobs. But that uh, in, uh, in private we should feel free to act otherwise. There's every reason to believe that there are important differences between the sexes, and those continue, and everybody knows about them, but uh, our society and our dominant opinions are in denial as, as to their existence. And, and, and so, um, yeah, it was no, nobody read the, the major part of my book. It was just the first two chapters they read where I tried to establish uh, that there was uh, a difference between men and women using some, uh, uh, some of the findings in science, in uh, evolutionary biology, and in uh, social psychology. And uh, I didn't get into neuroscience, but you can find it there too, as well as uh, sources, uh, literary sources, which uh, like Tarzan and Ernest Hemingway, which tell us and uh, show us what the pluses and minuses of the two sexes are. 
I never argued that uh, manliness was the only virtue or even a virtue by itself. It was enough just to say that there might be such a thing that, yes. uh, to attract uh, only adverse comment. Well, you said, uh, Betty Friedan famously said uh, almost a half century ago now that the, uh, the home was a domestic concentration camp for women. Yes. And uh, you had uh, folks like uh, a figure such as Gloria Steinem uh, saying yes. that, you know, a woman needs a husband like a fish needs a bicycle. And uh, <laughs> since, since she eventually got married, I guess that fish needed a bicycle. But nonetheless, <laughs> w- when you look at your argument, uh, it's the honesty. And I, I guess as a political philosopher, uh, I, I was uh, reading you as a political philosopher. I, I was impressed by the, the, the politic you, you understood was going on here and, and the, the fundamental reality that is, that is part of what it means to be human. For instance, uh, in the book, you mentioned uh, several things, such as that even the liberals uh, in the more modern sense of the word, the, uh, the, the feminists who are arguing against the differences between men and women end up in their own relationships living them out. They do. And yes, they deny by their actions what they say in their words. Yeah. So uh, in, in my most marriages, I think, for example, um, uh, the women do most of the most of the housework. The men do less, and men bring home most of the income, and women bring in less. But, um, and, and, and that has continued, sort of the uh, ancient uh, difference between men and women. That, uh, men are uh, in the Department of Foreign Affairs <laughs> outside the home, and women are the ministers of interior inside it. So that, uh, the, the way in which we do this and the things that we do and the amount of time that we spend doing these different activities uh, is not the same. But the general idea is recognizable by everyone. And by the way, if women really wanted men to do half the housework, they might get a result they don't want, which is men claiming to govern or rule or decide half of what goes on in the house, especially the question of what makes a clean house. I think most women want to be able to define that. I, I, I think that's a fundamental reality you have well identified. And uh, yeah. in, in your book, you make this observation, which, uh, which I have long remembered. You said that men reject and resist the expectation that they should abandon their manliness. They do not so much mind sharing their traditional opportunities with whoever can exploit them, and they have shown newfound respect for women who can. But they draw the line at doing what women have left behind. I think that's a that's a very keen observation, and uh, my guess is that that's behind such efforts as uh, as even President Obama making public yeah. comments about the fact that men need to do more housework, or for that matter, the current yeah. socialist government of Spain trying to legislate it with criminal penalties. Yes, uh, that's really a hopeless task. Well, then, uh, the situation has changed, and I think men do uh, work around the house more than they used to. But they still do more or less the same things. They do the outside work. They carry the trash and so on, do the heavy lifting. And uh, sometimes the um, the dishes, I always think that the person who makes the meals shouldn't also have to clean up afterwards. Personally, that's one of my compromises. But the difference uh, remains and I think uh, will remain. Well, in your the, book, in, you, you make the argument, uh, by the time you reach the conclusion, as I, I followed through your argument, that uh, at the end of the day, there should be this distinction between the public and the private. And uh, you, you really speak to both conservatives and liberals in our current context of, uh, of political discussion in suggesting that uh, the state ought to have 
uh, an interest in equal access to opportunity, regardless of, of sex or of gender. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the the culture, the society has to respect that in the private domain, uh, these persistent patterns that are uh, are are very attributed to manliness, uh, and uh, perhaps to its uh, its its opposite and twin uh, womanliness that that are simply going to endure. And uh, and and the state, the uh, the polis has a an investment in seeing that uh, such virtues that make such things possible endure. Yeah, that's true. We need conventions. Some people think that we don't need conventions and that we can make everything up for ourselves. But we can't. We need to have conventions which create expectations. So if you're a man or if you're a woman, there there should be expectations that go with that sex and that you will do or you know that you're expected to do. Otherwise, uh, the lazier of the two sexes or the more oblivious, both of those are the male sex, I would say, <laughs> uh, will get away with murder or with uh, other uh, lesser offenses. And and it's it's really very damaging to us to suppose that we have just a, a blank slate in front of us and we have no obligations except those that we choose to take for ourselves. That, that, that I think, is uh, a very difficult uh, moral principle to live by successfully. Let me ask you to look at the larger global scene for a moment. I'm, I'm very interested, as this year marks the 10th anniversary of the 9-11-2001 uh, terror attacks on the United States, as, as our moral vocabulary and uh, e- even our international perspective has, has changed so much over the last decade. How do you place the United States and our experiment in ordered liberty in the historical context of the early 21st century? What are the prospects for for this kind of experiment as you look to the future? I'm always optimistic for America. I think we got a very good start. It's, It's true that all we got from our founders is a start. They got us going, I think, in the right direction of uh, ordered liberty, as I think that's a good way to put it, with the, uh, self, the practices and, and constitution of, of self-government. Uh, the, so they, they give us a good start, but, it, uh, but it, 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 it's a start that doesn't uh, automatically renew itself. It's up to each generation that follows to uh, discover those principles and to apply them uh, intelligently. And, uh, and I, I, I think that uh, America had a pretty good record in the 20th century. And, and, and it's uh, just look at our foreign policy and the way that we came to the fore in the, in the world and ended up as leaders of the free world, coming to the uh, rescue of Europe twice, or maybe even three times if you count the Cold War. Yes, let's make it three times. <laughs> Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that is a record of six of recent success, and it's up to us to continue it. And we we have all kinds of problems. We have disputes, we have misunderstandings, and we have uh, setbacks. But uh, I don't think not, none of those have so far been shown to be profoundly uh, harmful. I do think that we're now coming to a crisis with the discovery that the welfare state is too expensive. We voted for ourselves government benefits that we don't really want to pay for. And I think that uh, the American people are gradually coming to that realization. And what will uh, what they will decide to do, I think, will, will be very interesting. I think uh, that the next uh, presidential election may be a, a 
critical one. I'm fascinated by the tenure that you have uh, you have experienced there at Harvard University over the process of decade after decade. Your father was a very well-known and respected uh, professor at both Yale and Columbia universities. You've spent an entire lifetime, basically, in terms of your adult life, in, uh, in, in a, a very honored place in American academia. Looking back over your lifetime, uh, d- just re- reflect for, with me for a moment. Uh, in, in terms of the life of scholarship, uh, what have been its rewards, and, uh, and how do you now look back on this life of investment and learning? I look back with uh, some satisfaction. I think that some of my work was good. Uh, and also some dissatisfaction. I wish I had done more. <laughs> um, that's for myself personally. I think I've uh, progressed somewhat in understanding since I was young to to now. And uh, I don't think that I've yet begun my decline. But maybe I'm uh, optimistic, too optimistic on that. Uh, but um, one of my major satisfactions isn't so much my work, it's uh, the students I've had. At Harvard has very good students. People come to Harvard for the other people who come to Harvard. That's that's what uh, most people say, that the, the, the best thing about Harvard is the other students that you'll meet and get to know. Not so much the faculty or the big name or the uh, prestige. And um, I, I've certainly tried to take advantage of the high quality of, of Harvard students over the year, years, both undergraduate and uh, graduate. Well, it's often said that great students make great professors, and uh, that certainly, uh, I think, is something that, uh, that most professors would recognize. And there are many students whose lives you've touched, and far beyond that, uh, persons who've read your books, been influenced by your contribution to this culture and uh, to our public life, and, uh, and now to thinking in public. I want to thank you for being my guest today. Thanks. That was very kind of you to say. At the conclusion of his book, Manliness, Professor Mansfield writes, A free society cannot survive if we are so free that nothing is expected of us. I think that's a very key insight. It's the kind of insight that reminds us that there is always a moral truth behind a political principle or or even an historical insight. And in this case, Professor Mansfield's writing very, very strategically about the collapse of a society or the weakening of a society if indeed that distinction between the public and the private is so eradicated that indeed we're now to have our private lives ruled by the confusions of a a postmodern morality. The very title of his book, Manliness, was indeed a manly choice. And we recognize that even as we look at the title and the cover of his book, that manliness is an indispensable virtue. As Professor Mansfield said, it's not the only virtue. I also appreciated the very courage that he demonstrated by speaking of his time at Harvard and of his role as a political thinker and as a professor and a member of that faculty, a teacher of the students who come. I think Professor Mansfield gives us a lot to think about there, and I especially appreciated how he ended speaking of the honor of being a teacher and of his experience of investing himself and his life in students. That's a key insight that reminds us that education is far more than mere transmission of knowledge. It is also the sustaining of a relationship. The issues raised by political philosophy are as old as humankind, at least as old as the human experience east of Eden. 
we're human beings, then congregate, we have a political reality that requires some kind of very careful thinking and, of course, a lot of ongoing negotiation. Eventually, it also produces reflection on how it is the human beings actually do this, how we do relate to one another in a process that, well, like it or not, is essentially political. Professor Harvey Mansfield reminds us that the political is never merely the political. There is always a cultural and moral issue behind it, a reality that is beyond the political. But at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons why political philosophy is a continuing interest of intellectual focus for so many is because we get to actually think about how human beings act, how they act in public, how indeed public issues reveal the human character, reveal virtues or the lack of virtue reveal what does and does not work, but also reveals how ideas do, in this very particular sense, rule the world. Good ideas and bad ideas. Ideas that honor human dignity and human liberty, and ideas that are subversive to human dignity and human liberty. Now, that is the proper area for a political theorist or a political philosopher to direct his or her thinking. But it is also a particular interest where Christians have to do some very, very careful thinking. After all, we have to be those who will remind ourselves that to be political is, in this sense, to recognize that we are made in the image of God, that God made us in His image as creatures who are able to think through these issues, who are able to create society, who indeed have the moral consciousness, the conscience that God has given and gifted to His human creatures. But we're also the people who understand that in a Genesis 3 world, in a fallen world, politics can never deliver on its promises. Human political promises can never live up to the highest human aspirations. It is because at the end of the day, whenever you put human beings together, you're not only putting humans together, you're putting sinful, self-interested human beings together. You're putting finite human beings together of limited knowledge. You're putting people together that, uh, that may hope for and dream of utopian realities, but can never, ever achieve them. But one of the sad realities of the 20th century is the reminder that there are those who are willing to sacrifice humanity in the service of trying to serve some kind of hoped-for utopia. Professor Mansfield talked about many things in the course of this conversation, but when it comes to, for instance, the conversation about American higher education, I think it's important for us to realize that as Christians, we are the ones who have to come back again and again to recognize that education is inherently moral. It is always about the inculcation of certain knowledge and certain affirmations, certain habits of mind that become habits of the heart, that become habits of life. In other words, the decision about education and, and the multiple, almost infinite decisions of value, in fact, made during the course of education, shape the individual who will come out on the other side. And of course, not as a finished project, but as a, a learner in motion. But let's never minimize what takes place during the college years. During the years a, a young person spends on the college or university campus, the most fundamental issues of life are directly confronted, often for the first time. And fundamental decisions are made that are far more difficult to unmake later in life. And for that reason, the political choices we make are important, the personal choices we make are important, and among those are the educational choices that we make as well. The stewardship of education is a very, very important thing. And one of the realities I really appreciate that came out in the conversation with Professor Mansfield is when he said that an education for a young person arriving at Harvard can be an iffy thing. Uh, it's one thing if that young person takes advantage of the massive investment of learning that is 
that is represented by that university over its uh, its centuries of existence, now over 400 years of existence. It's, it's quite a different thing if indeed that, uh, that young person takes all the trendy courses by the, by the trendy professors and can end up with a degree but without a real education. Now, of course, that's not just true of Harvard. It's true of virtually any elite uh, institution of American educational life. And it's true that we need to recognize that almost every college or university in America aspires to identify with that which is represented by Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Princeton, the Ivy League, the University of Chicago, Stanford, and, and other elite universities and academic institutions. The outsized influence of these elite institutions filters down throughout the entire culture of American higher education. So problems that are most acute right now on the campuses of Harvard and Yale and elsewhere are going to show up in a delayed sense as something of a, a delayed fuse on other college and university campuses as well. In some of his writings, Professor Mansfield, for instance, uh, deals with the political theory of John Rawls, whose theory of justice was especially popular among political liberals back in the 1970s and the 1980s. Well, without going into the detail of that theory, I think it's very important to recognize that there's something of a, of a filtering down that is just now hitting a, a lot of other colleges and universities, where a lot of the conversations right now about justice are influenced by theories that were, well, a generation ago, all courant and absolutely dominant on a college campus such as Harvard, but not so much now. And there's the recognition that the influence of an institution like that is simply massive. But so is the power of a teacher. And, and so looking at the individual life of Harvey Mansfield is just a reminder to us that spending a long period of years, a tenure in an institution such as that, a college large or small, a, a college elite or unknown, has a massive, massive power upon those one has the honor and opportunity to teach. The relationship between a teacher and a student is one of the most powerful relationships known on this planet. It goes all the way back to, of course, uh, the biblical picture of learning that takes place. It goes back to the Greco-Roman experience of, of education. It goes back to the picture of, for instance, Alexander the Great studying with Aristotle. And it goes all the way down right now to the classroom where there is a teacher and there are students and there is not only a class and a lecture, there is a relationship and an influence that is being shared. I appreciate the focus of Harvey Mansfield's writing and I look forward as he has new books come out. I appreciate the fact that here again is a mind in motion and a mind very much still at work. When we think about the gender issues and we think about the manliness that he in such a courageous and brave way wrote about in recent years, Christians need to think about the reality that we understand this not only in terms of literature and social theory and political theory, but most importantly in a biblical worldview that tells us that this is not only about what will lead to human flourishing, but the very important Christian understanding that God has created patterns of life for his creatures. He has inculcated in his creatures certain visions and virtues that are not only those which bring him glory, but also bring us the greatest human happiness and human flourishing. One of the most important things we can remember in the, in the midst of any kind of confusion over these issues is that Christians are the ones who understand that that which brings God greatest glory is simultaneously, and for that very reason, that which leads to the greatest human flourishing and true human happiness. That's what we can add to this conversation, a privileged conversation worth having with Professor Harvey Mansfield of Harvard University.
I want to invite you to an important conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary, September 26th through 27th. The Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies is hosting Baptist and War, a conference designed to help Christians consider how we should think about war in theological and historical perspective. For more information, visit spts.edu. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.